Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you. As you may well know, I work with uni students, and that age group are going through a fascinating stage of life. It's a chance for people to reinvent themselves. If they don't like who they were at school, they can have a fresh start at uni, hang around with different people, take up different interests, behave differently, dress differently, pretty much become a new person. Some nerdy people take up sport, some sporty people open a book for the first time. Some conservative people become socialists and some atheists become Christians. There are so many self-defining experiences. Sure, people get an education at uni, but in many ways, uni is about deciding who you want to be and what you're really committed to. It's about your identity and your loyalty. Well, today, as we open 1 John chapter 2, we open the Bible there. The Apostle John takes us to uni, but rather than making us make choices, John will educate us, remind us, encourage us, and challenge us about those same two things, our identity and our loyalty. John starts with talking about our identity as Christians in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. If you open your Bibles there, you'll see it's all about who we are and what we have. Chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. It's, if you're a literary person, your eye will be drawn to the words, I'm writing and because. It sounds like John is telling us his reason for writing the book. But I think the key words are you and your. The focus is on the ones to whom John writes. It's not I'm writing because, this is why he writes, but it's I'm writing to you because, why he writes to them. John writes to them because of what God has done in their lives. He wants to encourage them to remember and to know their true identity as God's people. So before we jump into the details, let's reflect on that. Do you know who you are as God's people? Do you know what you have because of Jesus? Are you clear on your identity? Look again with me at verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. John the Apostle, now probably an older man, calls his readers dear children. He does that often throughout the letter, partly because he's, he's older, but also to remind them that they are God's children. That's who they are through Christ, God's dear children treasured by God. You can tell that because of what God has done for them. See, look at verse 12 again. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his, Jesus' name. Our sins are forgiven through Jesus, through his glorious death on the cross to take away the punishment that we deserve. So our relationship with God is restored. And we can rightly know that we are children of the Father, children of God. 
There's nothing we have to make up for. There's nothing we have to pay back. God has freely and fully forgiven us through the costly death of Christ. So we are God's children and forgiven. And verse 13 says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know who, him who is from the beginning. Now, I don't think, I think it's probably not a special message just for fathers and not for others, as opposed to younger people as, or younger men, as verse 13 will continue to say. It seems that God, John is using a, a stylized way of talking about what God has given to all believers, both young and old. And the way he does that in these verses, there's lots of rhythm and repetition. Maybe John got into rap music in his old age. I don't know. So what does John say about believers? Well, verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. We know Jesus, who is described as the one who is from the beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. We know Christ. We are his disciples. He has reached out to us and drawn us in to be his. He even calls his disciples his friends. And what a friend we have in Jesus. But it's not just our relationship with Jesus that changes when we become Christians. You may not have thought of it this way before, but our relationship with the devil has changed. Look at the second half of verse 13. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. We used to share the devil's goals and values and priorities, live for ourselves. We used to have the same relationship with God he has, enemies awaiting judgment. We were in our hearts and minds and destiny, the children of the devil. But graciously, gloriously, that has all changed. God got hold of us and turned us around. He forgave our sins. He turned us to himself and adopted us as his own. And God did it all through Jesus. Our overcoming the evil one is God's work in making us his children through Jesus. It's like it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where Christian believers overcome the devil, the great dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony through Jesus and trusting in his death. So we are God's forgiven children. We know Christ and we've rejected Satan. Did you get all that? We're God's forgiven children who know Christ and have rejected Satan. I think Professor John is not sure we've got it all, so he tells us that stuff again, though with a bit more expansion. So he says in verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. We know Jesus, and so we know God. Since knowing God, Jesus is the way to know God. And it's just that, not just that we know about God, you know, that he is all-powerful and eternal. We know God. We're in a relationship with him. We know his love, we've experienced it, and we've responded to his love by accepting his love. 
in John's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus was in a, was in a debate uh, with the Pharisees. And Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 37 and 38, uh, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Jesus says that the Pharisees don't know God. And how can you tell they don't know God? Because for people who truly know God, they listen to his voice. They take his word into their hearts. And in that sense, his word is in them. That's what John says about believers at the end of chapter 14. I write at the end of verse 14, rather, at the end of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. It all sounds like God's Old Testament promises of a new covenant, a new relationship with God. If you know that wonderful passage in Jeremiah 31, that, that forecast, that broadcast of God's new covenant, it says this, Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, his words, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. All these new covenant promises are fulfilled in Jesus. We receive it all when we trust in Jesus. The knowledge of God, his word in our hearts and the forgiveness of sins. This is who we are in Jesus. This is what we have in Jesus. This is our identity in and through Christ. We are God's dear children. Those who are forgiven, who know Jesus, who know the Father, who have God's word living in us, who have overcome the devil. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is your identity. This is who you are. In the second half of our passage, John challenges us. We are God's children, so be God's children. We are the children of God, so be the children of God. He's not saying do these things that he's going to tell us to do and so become the children. No, he's saying because you already are the children, so do what children do. You are God's children, so live like God's children. Have the loyalties of the children of God. For John knows that there is an invisible and deadly disease all around us. A disease that we must be aware of. A disease that we must protect ourselves from catching. A disease that we must immunize ourselves against because if we catch it if it takes hold of us 
it may mean the end. And John's not talking about COVID-19. He's talking about love. It's not the love that you'd expect. It's the love that God hates. Look with me in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Don't love the world. That's the disease. That's the dead, deadly virus, the love of the world. So John says, do not love the world. But of course, that raises a bunch of questions, doesn't it? See, probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. John wrote it down himself. And what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if God loves the world, why should we not love the world? Good question. It's because God's holy love for the world is to save the world. But here in 1 John chapter 2, John is talking about unholy love for the world to join the world in its sin. A very different love. Others may raise a question about the environment. See, verse 15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. That sounds anti-environment. I mean, surely we should care for the world since it's God's gift to us to, to manage faithfully and well, not hatefully and wastefully and destructively. Yes, uh, that's right. Yes, we should care for the physical world that God has created and given us to manage. It, it's good to enjoy flowers and food and forests and football with thankfulness in our hearts. For in John's gospel and John's letters, the phrase the world is not usually about the physical environment. It's usually about the spiritual environment. It describes an anti-God community, society that rejects God. John is saying, don't join in that evil alliance that ignores God. We are not to love anything that is opposed to God. In fact, love of the world is incompatible with love for the Father. Did you notice that in verse 15? Have a look at verse 15 again. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. You cannot love the world and the Father. You can love the world. You can love the Father, but not both. It's because these loyalties are built on belonging that runs so deep. See, in John 15, verse 19, Jesus says this to his disciples. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Or like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other or love the one and be devoted to the other. Uh, despise the other, rather. Do not love the world. 
So what is the world like? This world that we must not love. Well, look at verse 15, uh, 16, rather, verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. They're terrible ideas, aren't they? The lust of the flesh, the cravings we feel, feel to, to, to do what we want. The lust of the eyes, what we see. You know, it's where we try to get what we want. It's in the Old Testament called coveting or idolatry. The pride of life, boasting in what we have or what we've done, you know, our strengths, our beauty, our knowledge, our achievements in what we have or what we do, not what God has given and made us. This way of thinking, this set of values doesn't come from God. It's from the world. The world is trying to win us over. The world wants us to fall in love. The world is trying to seduce us, to, to win us over, to gain our loyalties. And you can see that all around us, I think. In the ancient world, there was the, the myth of the sirens, uh, these beautiful women who would sit on the rocks at the edge of the shore and would sing a beautiful song to call sailors in to crash on the rocks and be killed. But their song was so beautiful, it was so seductive. And so, in the, at least as the myth goes, it would call the sailors in, they would be seduced, and they would die. What are the modern sirens? What are the sirens of our world? They're all around us, aren't they? The message, yes, come, come, envy others, value possessions more than people. Yes, come, aspire to greater wealth. Yes, believe TV, believe the internet ads, believe the magazines and the billboards. Yes, believe their message, forget about God and gain more, more possessions, more experiences, more treasures and pleasures. Love what you have and let it give you security. Where do you hear? the world's voice? Where do you hear the siren call? How are you tempted? Comfort, security, acceptance, respectability, pleasure, freedom, power, prestige, riches, advancement, beauty. See, Australia is full of idolatry, full of greed, full of materialism and sexual immorality. We've taken God's good and beautiful gifts and made them toxic, dangerous, deadly. We live in a country that says Christmas is great because we get presents rather than Christmas is great because we got Jesus. As I look around at uni students, they're in love with the world. Why are they in love with the world? How did they become in love with the world? When did they fall in love? I think it goes back to their parents, actually. 
their parents have, have trained them, that they've taught them that education and sport and high culture and success and professionalism and being respectable and articulate and impressive, that's the most important. Even Christian parents often give that message. I mean, squeeze in church and Christian things if you've got time left over. But those other things are the most important things. It's like the heroin addict who passes their addiction on to their unborn child. So these students grow up with a love of the world coursing through their veins from their very birth. And their friends pump them full of new junk, put that in their veins as well, feeding their addiction. So with Bibles closed, they get their values from their friends, from movies, from TV, from magazines, internet, not from God, not from the Father, from anything else, from the world. And I feel it too. I feel the call. I mean, those real estate or renovation shows on TV, those new houses are so nice. Life would be more comfortable, more pleasurable. And car shows, you know, the, the power and prestige of those beautiful cars. And even ministry roles, even ministry positions and titles. I mean, I'm in a global leadership team. Imagine the glory of that. The world is in the air we breathe. Good and beautiful gifts of God made toxic. But it's so deadly dangerous because it's exclusive love. Remember what verse 15 said? Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. God expects an exclusive love. I mean, I, I, imagine if one day I came home and said to Kathy, look, I love you. I still want to have you as my, as my wife, but I've decided I might, I might add another wife if that's all right. You can imagine how well that would go down, can't you? Because after all those years ago, almost 27 years, I stood in a church before God and many witnesses and said the words, forsaking all others to love Kathy and Kathy alone. And that's what it's like to be a believer, to love God above all other allegiances, not sharing, but having our greatest loyalty given to him. After all, that, loving the world is a disastrous investment strategy. Oh, when you look at the world, uh, when society opposed to God, it often looks like it's booming, going really well. But after so many booms, comes the bust. People can spend their lives and lose it all. That's what it says in verse 17, doesn't it? The world and its desires pass away. The world will fade away like a luxury house that burns down, like the greatest sandcastle in the world swept away by the next tide. The world and its desires pass away. Rebellious humanity with its sinful appetites will not last. It is headed for eternal death. But God's people, God's children, are headed for eternal life. Look at the back end of verse 17. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's our destiny. 
eternal life with God for everyone who chooses God over the world, for everyone who does not love the world, but loves the Father, who by grace give their highest loyalty to him. If you want to continue in faith, you need to reject the love of the world. They are are rivals for our love, our affection, our loyalty. The, The world wants that. But we need to get rid of that. Be aware of it. Protect ourselves from it. Immunize ourselves against it by loving God and remembering how he has loved us in Christ. By remembering who we are, who God has made us to be. And so vaccinating ourselves against the love of the world. Rejecting it. Protecting ourselves from the love of the world. Who are you? And who are you going to be? There's no need to reinvent yourself. If you trust in Jesus, know who you are. Know your identity. You are God's dear child whose sins are forgiven who knows Jesus, who knows God, who has God's word living in you, who has overcome the devil. And so live as God's dear child. Give him your loyalty. Live out that loyalty. Do not love the world or anything in the world for the love of the Father has been given us in Christ. Love the Father, the one who in Christ has loved you. Amen.